Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center. This is episode 49, Launch America. I'm Dan Hewitt, and I will be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, and leaders to tell you about all the coolest stuff taking place here at NASA. Today, we're talking once again, launching from American soil with two different vehicles developed by two different companies, Boeing and SpaceX. It's part of the commercial crew program to enable the capability to launch people into space by private American businesses. Today, I'm sitting down with the manager of that program, Kathy Leaders, who's based over at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. We got a brief history of the program, how it started and where it is now, a little bit more about the companies and their two different vehicles and what's ahead for the future. Very soon, we'll be announcing the crews that will be the first to travel on these vehicles, so stick around until the end to find out how to watch that live. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Kathy Leaders. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. I am sorry we're recording this in a refrigerator today. So I wish we had a jacket for you. I'll, I'll try to keep my teeth from chattering. <laughs> <laughs> but so commercial crew and we kind of want to get into you know where it all started um so the space shuttle program was america's ride into orbit for about 30 years mm -hmm. but then it came to an end and that's kind of where the seeds for commercial crew started correct actually i think um commercial crew really started with the original concept that america could, f could fly payloads on commercial vehicles. Hmm. So I really think it started in the 90s okay. in a lot of ways. Even um, sooner. Yeah, even sooner, because I think when people started to think about um, flying, you know, DOD payloads on ELVs, that was kind of the beginning of starting to think about, is there ways to use what's an emerging capability, a national capability, in ways that would help the space program. And so there was a couple of different initiatives that were out there, alternate access to space, a few other things that kind of, that really kind of planted that seed in several administrations about, is there ways that we can kind of make space not just for NASA? You know, for the longest yeah. time, space was just NASA's. And then really in the 90s when you started moving into these commercial launch vehicles and launch and reliable capabilities. Um, then that really, once you had that reliable capability that's there, then it, it, there's an option of, well, how can the space program potentially use this capability rather than create the capability? Um, so I, 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 I think this has been 30 years in the making. Oh, and, okay. and really, as industry shown that they can do and perform a function, I think then there's been this nat natural progression of then using that capability for the missions that industry can, can support. And then that allows NASA to really move out 
into the areas where we're kind of pushing the envelope and um, and th where there's more risk, mm -hmm. right? And and where really doing the research and the exploration that is really the government's role then. So when did we start getting really serious, really serious? I'm talking setting up programs, moving into buildings, stuff like that, about using these capabilities for people. So in the 2008, 2009 timeframe, I think when we were, I was working on cargo and at that time uh, from, you know, the policy perspective, the White House, they started looking at, okay, well, we're developing this capability for cargo, really what then potentially would we be able to use this? Could we use this for crew? And remember the, uh, the COTS program originally had been, you know, they had gone out with their initial proposals or their requests for, you know, proposals in the 2006 timeframe had been for commercial crew and cargo. It's why mm. it was C-3PO, right? It was commercial crew and cargo. And One of so, my favorite actors. Yeah, it, it's mine too. <laughs> <laughs> Alan was always way better at, at putting together a name of a program than, than we obviously were. <laughs> so um, so it, when they came in with those initial, um, you know, requests, companies did come in with concepts for how they were also developing their crew capability. It wasn't just cargo. Um, we at the time, you know, as we saw that evolving, really because station at that time really needed cargo capability mm -hmm. with um, the uh, with shuttle retirement. Uh, at that time, you know, on the I was working for station, and I we came in and and built our initial concepts for being able to use the capability that Alan Lindemore and his team were were investing in over under the Space Act agreements. So um, when the CRS contracts, commercial resupply services contracts were then awarded and we were making progress towards actually conducting the missions and working certification activities with Allen, then I think people started thinking, well, maybe there's a construct here that we can start working on mm -hmm. um, for crew. Kind of the cargo stuff was laying all the groundwork and now we're gonna springboard off of that and not just launch stuff but launch people too and on top of it too we we learned a lot from cargo i learned a lot from cargo how yeah. to set it up how to set up the certification phase and so we did learn things about cargo that we said for crew this will have to be different and it's why um starting in the 2009 2010 and then um you know we started working white papers on how do we do crew what mm -hmm. are the different options for crew um, at the very beginning, it wasn't really, you know, remember the first investment in crew was really through the ARA investments in 2010. And so there's very, you know, working the CC Dev proposal, some very initial um, investment. And in, because one of the things that we realized was under cargo, the infrastructure, when, when the SAAs were originally awarded, the, the companies had very little infrastructure mm. there. And so it was a, um, CRS was a very high risk, high risk, um, high gain, <laughs> high yeah. benefit, you know, procurement for us because really before we awarded CRS, um, we did not have return capability for, 
before science, mm. right? We did not have, you know, extensive cargo capability going up and down. It was really just going to be progress after show retirement. So that was, that was high risk, high reward for us. Um, but with crew, it has to be safe, reliable, the, the risk level and the tolerance is it goes down. So yeah. then it was really important for us to lay start laying the foundation of how do we go look at what are current gaps in industry that we need to beef up and invest in over the next few years. So that was kind of the 2010, 2011, 2012, you know, time mm-hmm. frame. And then in 2013, we said, okay, it's it's time to go do a a certification contract and then start buying missions for crew and so that's what actually got us to where we are kind of today where there's two companies getting ready to fly american astronauts again two companies they have their their spacecraft is really really cool right now i can't tell you um go out to spacex you see spacecraft in the building one our our dm1 vehicles getting ready to roll out to go to Plumbrook in a week and a half. Um, you go over into the C-3PF um, down in Florida and the Boeing spacecraft, you get C-3 spacecraft. The uh, spacecraft one's getting ready to get shipped out to go support paddleboard test. Uh, spacecraft two's getting ready to get shipped to California to go through environmental testing and that will eventually come back and become our first crewed flight test vehicle. Mm-hmm. And spacecraft three is getting assembled, and we'll be getting ready to fly later this year. So it's we have um, it's really really cool. We have six spacecraft in different um, stages of construction and and really final integration and testing right now um, to support all the critical system level tests, but also for the demonstration tests. And and on and getting ready for our post certification mission. So it's it's really a fun stage of the program right it's now. Kinda like all of those years of this being on paper and presentations and stuff like that, but now there's you can walk into a room at multiple places Lots around the country. Hardware. Lots of hardware. And when see I, something that's getting ready to go to space. When I um when I came over from station in uh, two thousand thirteen as deputy program manager at JSC, I had just launched, had been launching both the, the SpaceX demo flights and the initial CRS missions for SpaceX, and we we're getting ready to launch the demo flight for Orbital, and had three spacecraft in work on the Orbital side, and I was just so excited, and then Ellen asked me to come over and be deputy, and I thought, oh, here I'm going to go all the way back to that paper stage that you're talking about, just after working all doing, I put all this work into it and get these vehicles, and so exciting to see these vehicles, and then we were back at the paper stage, but we quickly started getting into really what it takes to go start putting vehicles together and go fly these missions. So you moved over to the commercial crew program. Let's talk a little bit about that, kind of. So where where is it based? What is what is the commercial crew program on NASA's side doing with these companies? So I, I kind of view the commercial crew program as like tech transfer on steroids. <laughs> That's how I kind of view it, right? Because uh, we have really been like the conduit for providing, you know, the 50 years of NASA human spaceflight experience to both these companies. Um, 
and and allowing them to have that it's just really the great thing about NASA going and doing this exploration I mean we're still using the data off of the early manned flights you know Apollo has been a wealth of experience for both these oh, wow. companies and and all the shoot testing and all the tests that they did you know amazing amount of experience so as we're doing these missions you just don't know that 30 40 years that that data is still relevant and helpful for us to then be able to then for these companies it would have been cost prohibitive for them to have been able to go and replicate all the the data and what we learned out of doing those you know early human spaceflight missions with the capsule designs i mean they really really learned from that has it gone to the level like do you have old apollo engineers that have come back in or has somebody been you know digging up old schematics from an archives room somewhere? Uh, there's definitely been a lot of digging and pulling data <laughs> and pulling everything you know the the companies will come in and say hey, we're having this kind of a problem and, and having people that have been out there and have learned and, and said, hey, I had that problem. You know, this is what we did. But most importantly, uh, I say it's been tech transfer on steroids from a NASA perspective, but it's also tech transfer from the company's perspective. Mm-hmm. We've, you know, we've, our engineers on commercial crew have been, a, have had the opportunity to be able to work on not you know the two spacecraft designs but then also be working with Sierra Nevada on you know their winged vehicle designs and also I've been able to work with Blue Origin on their suborbital um, vehicles and so when you think about how you're tooling the next industry of explorers (laughs) there's nothing better than having an engineer that that's been able to have this exposure to all these different vehicles. One of my favorite stories is one of the co-ops here at JSC um, was doing their outbrief, and they talked about how they did aerodynamic studies on three different spacecraft. Wow! Now, you know Orion, <laughs> you know the Boeing CST-100, and the Dragon. I mean, just think about how many people could be out there in the world that could say that that was their co-op project for the year. That's a competitive resume. That's a very a competitive resume for a student. <laughs> I thought, you know, yeah, amazing. Well, let's let's get into the vehicles a little bit because we are going to be launching crew. But I mean, these are the these are the slick new cars in the garage that everyone's excited to see. Mm-hmm. So I'll just go alphabetically, and we'll start with Boeing. So the Starliner. Tell us a little bit more about that spacecraft. So uh, the Starliner is really. Um, you know they they the way the Boeing company has built this they really built off it they have a tremendous amount of experience in human spaceflight and so they've really taken a lot of their the experience that went out there using a lot of the aero um, it's a capsule design um, it's uh, aerodynamically operates a lot like other capsule designs. One thing I wanted to bring up because people always, anytime they see Orion, any of these other spacecraft, they always ask us, well, that looks like Apollo. Why do these, why are all these brand new spacecraft, why do they look the same as something from Cause, you know, cause decades it go, ago? Because it goes back to, there's, there's two really important things to be able to design a safe vehicle. Mm-hmm. One is to really understand the environments and, and two is to understand how to build something that can, you know, hold up to those environments. And, and how many times has a spacecraft come 
hurtling down and, and, you know, landing on the earth. Not very often. And so what, what you can go try to go build your own data sets, um, or you can really leverage off of the data sets that are out there. Mm -hmm. And so I think both companies, they, what, they were trying to, their number one goal was not to expand the knowledge of, that's a, the nice thing about commercial, is they're trying to say, how do I get from, the with the data I have, how do I get to a spacecraft as quickly as possible? Yeah. And so their whole goal is, what's the data that's already out there, and how can I use that data to then be able to design a spacecraft and know enough about the environments to make sure that that spacecraft will, will operate within regimes that I know that it can it can survive. So right? kind of like we know this shape works for, we know that if we build it and it looks like this and it's coming back from space, it we know should, that, we, that we, 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 we should have a good idea about what it is. Obviously there's different variants, right? The, yeah. the Apollo, when you look at it, the Apollo and Orion, their spacecraft there, they're way bigger because of the way their missions are, right? Mm -hmm. um, the CST-100 and the Dragon, they're like ferry flights, right? So it needs to be big enough to get at least the four people up and, you know, be able to not kill each other in the two or three days or the day that it takes to get to station a little bit, and, yeah, a little and bit have a little bit of movement and be able to do some basic functions and stuff like that, but no party room, yeah. um, right? And and it needs to be on orbit and, and a place where people can go hang out if they need a safe haven function, but it's not for doing a long-term mission, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so if when you look at the vehicles, you know, the companies with our goals in mind, and, and we, we didn't tell them you have to have a spacecraft this big. We said, we need a spacecraft that can fly four people safely to the International Space Station and back. That has to be reliable, and we want it to be cost effective. So then they said, okay, how do I optimize that for, hmm. for the, the mission I have? And also for, for hopefully flying on the cheapest rocket. Not the cheapest from a reliability standpoint, but to be able to have it in the smallest rocket as possible to be able to support the mass. It's always this big mass trade that people yep. have, right? So, you know, when you look at Apollo and you look at Orion, those vehicles are really tailored for their mission. When you look at the CST-100 and the Dragon, they're tailored for this very flight mission that they have. Gotcha. Well, back to CST-100, so four seats, four people launching inside the capsule? So they actually have they have more capability. Um, mm -hmm. They actually have proposed uh, a fifth seat, oh, so okay. we have a fifth seat capability. Um, we right now are focused on kind of optimizing it for our mission, which is the fourth seat and the cargo for that. Um, but they actually proposed a fifth seat. Hmm. Um, and then the SpaceX... Uh, we're working a four seat with all our cargo complement, but they actually um, also advertise seven um, commercially. So it's always, you can go, what's really cool, you can go on websites and see what commercially they're offering. And then mm. you, we can, you know, we've kind of optimized for our mission, certain cargo complements, certain crew complements that kind of support the station mission. It is pretty cool because you, you said we kind of gave them, this is what we needed to do. 
and, and this is what they come back with. And you're seeing two different companies, two different designs, two different capabilities, but they're each going to accomplish our mission. But then we now have these yeah. commercial companies that might have their own thing. I think that's the, one of the funnest things about this job is that people, um, when our NASA engineers work with the companies, we it's a collaboration, mm -hmm. right? It's a partnership. And, and we come to the table and said, well, this is kind of what we did for shuttle, you know, this is kind of what we did here. And this is what we have this, you know, this is what we've been working with on the Orion side. But then they'll come in and say, well, this is what I learned on Cargo Dragon for the SpaceX guys. And the mm -hmm. Boeing guys will say, hey, this is what we've been working on. This is how it optimizes it. And we're all learning together. And it's really, I think that's, that's kind of the funnest part is I've, I've seen our, our crew come in and say, well, we think this is what it is, but let me go talk to them and we'll go figure out. Let's go understand what are they optimizing because these are flying a safe and reliable vehicle and having it be cost effective. It's like this big puzzle, yeah. right? And so you got to get all the puzzle pieces together right to have it work perfectly. But but each of the puzzles look a little bit different, right? And so it's, it's you got to be careful sometimes. You can't come in and with your Orion puzzle piece. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily isn't optimized for a CST 100 or a Dragon, yeah. right? You got to be careful. So um, it's it's the team really is learning a lot. Um, it's it's really a fun fun project. All right. Well, let's talk about everybody's favorite moment: launch. Yes. How are these vehicles getting into space? So it's really cool for me because my um, my house is that in Florida. Mm -hmm. So it used to be when I was getting ready for the cargo vehicles, I'd have to go down and stay in Florida and wait and wait and wait for when we're ready to launch, right? Yep. But both of these provide, but now I have my house in Florida, so I can wait and wait and wait <laughs> at my house while we're ready to, and sleep in my own bed while we're waiting to launch, yes. <laughs> um, but both providers are launching from KSC. Uh, the Boeing vehicle CST-100 is launching on Atlas V, mm -hmm. so it's it's flying out of the complex uh, 41. I always have to think it through 40 is SpaceX 41, yep. 39A, and then SpaceX is 39A. So they're you know they retrofitted one of the shuttle pads, mm -hmm. and um, so they'll be flying their crewed missions and the Falcon Heavy missions out of uh, 39A, so that's gonna be really, really cool. Um, it's nice, I can see both of them out of my office window. So <laughs> I'm, it's, it's, uh, I already got to see how uh, the Atlas V complex has changed with the crew access arm already being on, and we've changed already, commercial crews changed the look of that pad, and we're getting ready to change the look of 39A when the crew access arm starts going up this uh, late summer out at uh, with SpaceX so it's pretty exciting so Boeing on the Atlas 5 and SpaceX on their Falcon 9 both of those rockets have launched stuff but not people and there's some extra work to make sure that you can put people on them right yes there is a lot of extra work you know um, and and you know both like always the two companies have have kind of taken it a little bit different route. Really mm -hmm. with Atlas V, they've gone, really they have their proven reliability. They've been doing their systems a certain way. Um, and so we've been really working with them on 
working through all the certifications and understanding and building off of really what the Air Force folks have already done and our own NASA Launch Services Program folks have been doing to go make sure that all the human rating requirements that we need for crewed launches, that they're still meeting them. Um, and the SpaceX folks, they've been doing a major upgrade for their, their um, Block 5 upgrade. And as part of that, they've added, they chose to add some additional redundancy in parts of their vehicle to be able to fly crew. But for both companies, really what, what we've been working with them on is how do they insert the, the whole crew insertion into their timeline mm -hmm. while still making sure that we keep consistent loading and launch profiles as close to what they do for payloads because you really want consistency yeah right so there's there's one thing i've always kind of wondered and it's when it comes to human rating a rocket i'm i guarantee there's a million and one requirements but what are some of kind of the big differences between a rocket that yeah we can launch a satellite that and yes we can launch a human on that are there any Again, I bet there's, you know, a million and one differences, but uh, are there any kind of like big, like you cannot have the rocket doing this, a rocket must have this, that kind of stuff? So we, one of the things we worked really, really hard on was how to have requirements. I already gave you my examples of the requirements mm -hmm. of, I just said flight for crew, right? Yeah. And so we tried not to have requirements that, that were prescriptive. Yeah. But what we wanted to make sure is that that the systems that they had in place controlled the hazards that were that the vehicles exposed the crew to mm -hmm. and that they had the necessary hazard controls in place for us to be able to put crews on their vehicles and so really um, this has been a kind of an arduous process with the providers is that you don't typically have to do that for the payloads but for crew, we've had to go through a safety review process with both companies where we're going through, okay, how do you get ready for launch? How do you process the vehicle? And then how are you making sure that, and that you're listing all the hazards that are involved. Obviously, you know, uh, oh, yeah. rockets kind of like a controlled explosion in some way. Like how do you make sure that, that, that all those things that are needed for the rocket to work are done in a way that minimizes the risk to the crew. Mm -hmm. And so we've gone through kind of an extensive process where they've listed their hazards and then what are all their controls and then and then how are we gonna verify those controls? That's been probably the biggest part of our requirements that is really making sure that they have controls for their hazards in place. The second part of it is typically um, for commercials for payload users, they don't necessarily come in and say, here's your design and construction standards. Mm -hmm. Here's how you, you know, this is what we view as kind of the key parts of making sure you have a reliable and safe vehicle. And, and the Air Force and uh, Launch Service Program have typically said, give us your standards and we want to make sure that you are following your standards. And that's really the process that they go through to certify. With human rating requirements, we have a list of standards that engineering or SNMA have come in and said, for them to be human rated, you have to show compliance to those standards, yeah. to the human standards. Um, but so this has been a big challenge for the program because one, we don't really want 
we would like to have their standards really them be able to operate to their standards. We mm -hmm. don't want a special group of standards because we would really like, if they've been flying reliably, it would be good to continue processing in that way. Yeah. So the big challenge that the, the program's had is going and, and comparing the commercial provider standards to our standards and saying, do these meet the intent? Mm -hmm. and, and maybe there's been a few small focused areas where um, we've had to work with the providers on, but overall, I think both providers have had um, have had good standards, good processes, and and been able to work it. The two areas that are unique that no commercial providers work, but that have been human rating standards for us are fracture control. That that was is a new kind of requirement set. It's really making sure that you have materials that don't fatigue, mm. and and if they fail, that it doesn't. They don't fail in a way that's catastrophic. That's yeah. very important to us, um, and and typically hasn't been applied for launch vehicles because those are these are, you know, it's a very short mission typically, and and um, with the robustness of the vehicle, typically you haven't had to do that. But with crew, that's an area that we really want to make sure that there's not some kind of a fatigue failure that could end gotcha. up being a catastrophic failure. Um, there's a new mechanism standard that's pretty new for us, and so that hasn't been necessarily flowed out to industry. Um, one of our goals is is to not only, is to really help industry develop their human rating standards. You know, my, my dream one day would be, I don't have to do an equivalency because somebody else has already gone through, just like when I get on a plane, it'd be beautiful if somebody else has already certified the rocket right yeah. but right now we're the only people that certify human rated rockets um but that doesn't mean that that's not that could change in the future you know we we've been working with other agencies um and different uh you know the aiaa mm -hmm. and other organizations to go look at is there some way that we could take our learning that's been in our standards and make them available so that industry at some point adopts standards that they then can use so that we're not in the middle of the certification. But, but this is just a step, right? Yeah. This is just a step. We go through the painful process now, so hopefully we down go the through road, the, yes. everything's safe and already laid out for everybody. Goes that tech transfer on steroids. That's right. Tech transfer on <laughs> steroids. This is another place, right? We've got all this experience. You know, really our standards are just key things. They're like our book of hard knocks, right? We're yep. like, oh, crap, write that one down. Don't <laughs> do that again. Yep. You know, oh, crap, please do this. Don't do that one again, right? And so so um, that learning, I mean, has already been out there in industry over time. You know, there's aerospace standards that have been out there because companies have been working with NASA for the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. This is another area where I think we just, the, the human part of it, we just have to work on. All right. All right, so they've launched. How are they controlled? Because this is also kind of a whole new thing for us. I mean, throughout NASA's history, we have we have our mission control, and, you know, that's the room, that's, that's the, who has their finger on the button kind of thing. But for these providers, it's yeah. going to be different. Well, so what's really cool is when we went out for our um, for our certification and our services, we said, "You go figure it out. You know, you go figure out where you want to be, where you want to be controlled." So, 
both of them actually, you know, at KSC, once you launch, they both of them have obviously con launch control centers at the Cape mm -hmm. to go to support their vehicles. And then they also have mission control centers to handle the initial, um, obviously, calm with the spacecraft, right? But then um, for SpaceX operations, they hand back over to MCCX, which is in Hawthorne. And for uh, in Boeing California. in California, yeah. Hawthorne, California. Yeah, thank you. And and for uh, Boeing, that actually is going to be controlled out of MCCH. Uh, Boeing has a uh, arrangement, a task plan with our mission control, our our, our uh, FOD, our Flight Operations Directorate, here in and here in Houston, here in Houston. So it and so we'll be along with. The ISS Control Center here. There will be a Boeing Mission Control Center here too that will be um, monitoring and operating that vehicle and working together for joint ops. Um, the same control center for that um, works the cargo vehicles for SpaceX right now will be also. It's in the process of being upgraded to also be handling the crewed missions. Um, and this might get into the weeds a little bit, but how much? So these new spacecraft, are they going to be, because, for example, the Russian Soyuz, largely automated, automated docking, you know, the crew has some tasks on board, mission controls largely monitoring, shuttle was a lot of, you know, on board flying for the crew and stuff like that. Where are these vehicles going to kind of fall? And are they, again, are they different? Yeah. So I think both of them are fairly autonomous. If you think mm -hmm. about it, it kind of goes back to, once again, the commercial concept, right? And if you're a company that wants to have control over how your vehicle's operating and with the capabilities they have today, mm -hmm. with computer, the processing capability and everything else, they're really developing very sophisticated autonomous rendezvous and docking and re-entry um, capabilities. And so really cruise there as a monitoring function and backup in case like something really goes wrong but these they're really both companies are are designing their spacecraft to be too fault tolerant to a failure um all along the way very robust which mm -hmm. is really our intent we wanted to have very robust vehicles yeah. right very robust vehicles we we asked them to design their vehicles to be too fault tolerant and to not have con crew as a control so we, that was a, it kind of went, goes back to safe and reliability being kind of important tenants and the companies that really come through. They have different strategies for how they do that. Um, and they'll be checking out that autonomous capability be, on their first uh, demonstrations because they'll be uncrewed. They'll be uncrewed yeah. demonstrations to the ISS. So that will kind of prove out that autonomous capability. I always tell people I'm, I'm uh, I know we got self-driving cars out there, but I'm really hoping that before they roll out their first commercial one, the first commercial self-driving crew vehicle that's being bought by the government is going to be a crew transportation vehicle that's going to the ISS. And it's so, going to be a spacecraft. Yes, We're it's going to be a game. spacecraft. We're ahead of the game. <laughs> We're in front of them. <laughs> Very cool. Well, so it's launched. It's flown itself flawlessly to the space station. Crew's been on board. They undock. It's time to come home. You know, and if, I, if it goes flawlessly to the space station, 
I'm like been really good in my life. So it's like <laughs> we will learn things along the way, yeah. right? But I will go and it will reliably, safely, reliably get there and we'll be docking and, and we'll be learning stuff along the way. I absolutely know that. And then when it's time to come home, how are these vehicles coming back? Because that's so, going to be different too, right? Yeah, they have, so both of them use, um, you know, they have orienting thrusters kind of, and then they, bo they both use a parachute landings, you know, a parachute assisted landings. Mm -hmm. um, Boeing is going to be landing on, on the western part. They have five landing sites on the western part of the United States. Um, kind of ranges from California, you know, all your like the Dugway, Wismer, all the, you know, the open desert kind lots of areas, of lots of empty. Around. Oh yeah, don't, don't want anybody nearby. Yep. Um, and, uh, and then um, SpaceX is going to be, they're looking at two water landing sites um, near the, off the Florida coast, on both sides of the Florida coast. And so kind of trying to give themselves kind of as many options as possible. Primary is off the east coast of Florida right now. So that'll be, that. I mean, that'll be pretty interesting because, I mean, Soyuz, we're landing on land over in Kazakhstan, so. That big that. open space. We don't have this big, as much big. I wish, we yeah. had a, I wish we had a Kazakhstan, but we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think New Mexico will be close. That desert's pretty sparse. Yeah. What I, but, I mean, have we, have we ever landed American spacecraft on land in America before? We have not. I we don't have think not. we have not. Yes. So that'll be an exciting now, first. Now, there's, you know, not from orbital. You oh, know, I mean, so, I mean obviously Sorry, Blue Origin Blue Origin did suborbital yep. uh, demos. Um, but yeah, this will be the first time. And and you know, so the other I'm gonna say it again, tech transfer on steroids, but the other really cool thing about this is that we're learning how to work with different agencies. So if you can imagine um, you know, the first the demonstration missions are NASA missions, so we're going to be working with the FAA for clearing airspace for those and with mm -hmm. our contractors. But when we start getting into our post-certification missions, those will be FAA license missions. And so we've been working with them on how do you clear airspace for a capsule that's coming across LA or, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you know, like, I mean, there's, so yeah, so, so there's, there's, it's going to be, we're learning on how are we going to do this? How do we really do commercial space flight and landing and landing in these different areas and, and working with other agencies and air traffic control and all these other things and, and, and doing these for these commercial missions, not so, this, not the things that people really think about, but it's really what makes it work. So somebody, you know, on final approach at LAX doesn't look out the right side and see a spacecraft. Yeah, exactly. That would out. be bad. That, that would, would not yeah. be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, so you, you've you've mentioned the PCMs, the demos, kind of lay out the cadence of how this is all going to unfold for us for both of these companies. You know what what missions are kind of you know on the schedule, and what what does a PCM even mean? Okay, so. We call um, both providers, originally when we did the contract, we said, you know what, we don't want to just jump into missions, our, mm -hmm. our long-term, long-duration missions to the space station, um, because we'd really like to have a, a trial run on, on with the vehicles. And so we originally put in the contract just to have a demonstration mission, 
a crude demonstration mission that kind of checked out the whole vehicle. We got mm -hmm. to have on-orbit time with the vehicle before we start using these vehicles for our post-certification missions. So when I say PCMs, it's really the crew rotation flights. It's the it's okay. the, the long-term, like the like a Soyuz increment equivalent, right? So actually both providers came back and, and offered up both an uncrewed demonstration mission and a crewed demonstration mission before we run into the cadence of doing the, the long-term missions. Mm. Um, now, we are, they're both getting ready for their uncrewed demonstrations and uh, they're both shooting for this fall for the uncrewed demonstrations. And then within three or four months, both of them are, are planning to fly their crewed demonstration missions um, after the uncrewed demonstration missions. Just as, as a, we, just as a, 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 I would say almost a security blanket, but it's not quite, you know, we, mm -hmm. one of the things as program manager that I worry about is making sure that, that A, the space station has capability to fly their crews and to support on-orbit operations for space station. They need crews on orbit. And, and what's really, so we need to get there and we need to get there fast, yeah. but we need to get there safely and we need to get there reliably. And so um, one of the things we just did a few months ago was we just added the capability contractually for Boeing to be able to, if everything goes well on their orbital flight, their uncrewed flight test, mm -hmm. for them to be able to potentially stay up longer for their crewed flight test. Um, what that does is it gives um, it gives us potential additional capability, um, but then it also lets them have if they need more time to then get their their orbital flight test vehicle back, they they use that vehicle again, so it gives them more time to then be able to refurbish that vehicle and get that vehicle ready for then their first post certification mission, which right now is in the 2019 late 2019 early 2020 time frame the first time you're refurbishing anything it goes back to I, I maybe was a really great person my whole life but what I found out as a manager and engineer is um, you learn stuff right mm -hmm. they're gonna learn things about that vehicle and, and how it operates and how it comes down and we need to make sure that that vehicle has the time that it needs to be checked out and 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 made sure that it's all ready to go before we send it back up for one of our post-certification missions. That's right. As we get through the demonstration missions, then ideally, you know, we've kind of stacked up our missions because one thing, it kind of goes back to the theme of making sure that the providers have the time that they need to fly safely and reliably. Um, we've made sure that they both contractors have the capability to be able to fly a consecutive crew mission if we need if the other one needs help mm. right so um, so we'll be monitoring we'll be looking at it both providers will be learning things and then but eventually we have two crew rotation missions to, to station and so each of the providers will have a mission to station and then We'll see. We'll see what other yeah. kinds of missions. You know, we're in the process right now of, of understanding how do we commercially use the space station. And so we already are working with both providers on maybe they have other 
passengers or other missions or other things that they're working and proposing. And so we're really hoping that through us using these folks, that that then will jumpstart, potentially jumpstart their use by other providers and, and then kind of, you know, provide a, a platform for other commercial and research and other uses in low earth orbit. So it's not just us. I, I'm, you know, I always tell people space is not for NASA, just for, it's not just for NASA anymore. Space is not just for NASA anymore. It is for all of us. It is for every American. It is for you. It is for my children. It is for all of us. It's just not there for somebody with a gold badge. Well, you just checked off a whole bunch of stuff I was going to ask you about. But so, I mean, the future looks really bright, right? Especially right now as we're, we're getting so close to these test flights getting off the ground. And, like, that'll be super exciting. And then we're going to have people launching from Florida again to the space station. And then we might have non-NASA people launching on these vehicles. And these companies doing all kinds of crazy stuff. What about beyond low Earth orbit? Do you see eventually these commercial companies spreading their wings even a little bit further out, maybe not specifically these ones, but right now we're working really hard to commercialize low Earth orbit. What about beyond that? Who knows? You know, I, I, I think if you, when I first started working commercial cargo in 2005, 2006, people would say, you're never going to fly. Mm. You guys are never going to fly. That this is crazy, <laughs> and and look at we've we're on CRS fifteen, you oh, know, yeah. yeah. I'm so there's one who up, there's knows an orbital vehicle up there right yeah, now. There's an orbital vehicle up there right now. So in 2008, if you would have said we're flying crew, even when we we were doing the white papers and looking at it, people said you're crazy. This is like we're never going to do that. People never, there people are never going to be able to do it. So who knows? You know, I think our job is to to dream for the nation, mm-hmm. right? And and so I I think yes, I think they will be out there. I think it's going to be like you know Solo just opened up over the last, you know, in the movie theaters. I guess not very well, but in the movie theaters <laughs> over the last few weeks. <laughs> and uh, who knows, right? There's a reason why we keep having these same dreams. We've been having these dreams for a long time. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll take us a little bit longer to get there, but for some reason we've been having these dreams for all of us to have our own spaceship one day. You know, I grew up on the Jetsons. We're not there, but who knows? Who knows? I, I don't think we can stop dreaming. So I think when we say we can't is when we stop. So I think, I think they can be out there. It may take us another 100 years. It may take us another, you know, who knows? But who knows? What I do know is that when I'm down at the Cape and I see what just people doing cargo has done, you know, just our investment in cargo Mm -hmm. meant that the launch services program had another viable launch vehicle to be able to fly medium-class missions. And it meant that you got a bunch of other space companies out there now. Blue Origin's got a fantastic facility, you know, on the outside of the gates at KSC. 
and look at i just saw a sign that said you know it was advertising titusville florida and it said we've had more launches from the space coast than we've ever have huge resurgence right so who knows but it's the dreaming i think i think there was a dream and we made it happen and then who knows all right that's awesome i like that one a lot i think we just about exhausted it for today that's kind of it. I want to thank you for coming and sitting down with me and spending a little time. I'm glad we could steal you away from a couple of meetings for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I got to turn off my phone. I was pretty excited about that. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Thanks, Kathy. Okay. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. We just scratched the surface on NASA's commercial crew program. If you want to go learn more, get online, head over to nasa.gov slash commercial crew. Or as always, you can follow our multiple social media accounts. Commercial crews on Facebook at NASA commercial crew on Twitter at commercial underscore crew. And you can use hashtag ask NASA on your favorite platform. Submit your ideas for podcasts and we'll also answer some questions. Be sure to check out some of our other podcasts. Uh, we have things like Gravity Assist and NASA in Silicon Valley. You can find those uh, everywhere you can find this podcast. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, May 30th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Kelly Humphreys, Kyle Herring, Star Reynolds, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, and of course, Gary Jordan. And thanks again to our guests, Kathy Leaders, for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.